With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The president is creating roadblocks here in Cincinnati. Congress is doing the same for an infrastructure bill. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. We've got the national spotlight in Cincinnati and also, of course, traffic here. Um, but a big deal. President Biden here today um, talking about jobs, infrastructure uh, and this latest stimulus deal. Uh, and I think the words that everyone wants to hear here in Cincinnati is Brent Spence Bridge. Why? You think we need to fix it? Is there a problem know. here I'm not aware of? I, oh, I my pray goodness. every time I cross it that I make it across safely. Yeah, you, you know, it's the, the Brent Spence Bridge, Amy, is consistently ranked as one of the 10 most important bridges in the country. I mean, it, it connects, obviously, I-75, which goes from Detroit to Florida. I mean, this is a really, really important artery in, in the, the movement of goods in, in this country. And, and I, I'm so frustrated. I, I know it comes across that way a little bit. But, you know, I, we still don't know if it is in this bill. I, I, I'm hoping he talks a little bit about what's inside the bill and what it would pay, because if this isn't in it, I don't know what else could be in it. So President Biden here today, right, he visited IBEW uh, and NECA Electrical Training Center. This is on Glenway Avenue. And this he was discussing his Build Back Better agenda. And then in a little while, uh, he'll be at Mount St. Joe for a town hall that'll be on CNN. Uh, and, he, you know, he's coming here to talk about the importance of this kind of next $7 trillion bill uh, that he's proposed. And, and there's a lot of things in it, right? COVID-19 relief. Um, we've talked about infrastructure and kind of soft infrastructure and then infrastructure. Right. And right. we've got a little bit of everything in this, um, you know, 10 million clean energy jobs, uh, government funds on housing, education, economic fairness, healthcare, a little bit of everything in there. But you're right. I, I think that for many of us, not not to say that none of those things are important, because I think they all are to some degree, but we want to see the physical change yeah. Yeah. here. Yeah, we, we, we need a lot of infrastructure replaced. And, and you know, we, we've put off maintenance for so many years that a lot of the items that could have been maintained 10 or 15 years ago, you can't maintain them. Now you have to replace them. And, and that's kind of where the Brent Spence Bridge uh, is at. When it was designed years ago, it was not designed for the amount of traffic that it carries right now. So, you know, the, my personal frustration is that at one point you had Mitch McConnell heading up the Senate. You had John Boehner heading up Congress and, and you had a, a president from the same party, George Bush, in the White House. And because there was a, a moratorium on earmarks um, for years and years and years, they never put uh, a replacement bridge in for the Brent Spence bridge into any of the budgets during those years. So it was frustrating for me that something so important to the local economy was never taken care of. And, and you well, know, not even just the local economy, right? I mean, to your the point, national economy. The, yes, exactly. Yeah. And both President Trump and Obama promised to replace the bridge. And well, I don't see a replacement in there yet. So I'm, I'm hoping finally this infrastructure deal, which, by the way, Amy, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but when we were talking about the bipartisan 
deal that was made a couple of weeks ago. At the time, it was a $580 billion deal. And now we're calling it a $1.2 trillion deal. I, I mean, it, these numbers it is amazing to yeah. me how Washington just throws billion-dollar numbers and trillion-dollar numbers around. This is the small package. This is I know it gets, gets confusing, but this is the small bipartisan package that's going to be uh, you know, voted on the way bills are supposed to be with both parties' approval to get it through. And and that's not a gimme by any stretch. The next one down the pike is a $3.5 trillion deal that is going to be tried to put through uh, with reconciliation. And, you know, reconciliation doesn't require Republican votes. So, uh, you know, stay tuned on how, on how that works out. But this is this is the small one. This is the $1 trillion program. Yes. Well, in Senator Portman, right, one of the negotiators on that bipartisan bill, um, and, and he, thankfully, grateful for him, continues to kind of toot that horn of, yes, the Brent Spence Bridge, the Brent Spence Bridge. Yet you're right. We've had the last couple of presidents coming here giving great kind of lip service to it, but I we have not seen any changes. And I think for a lot of people, when we're talking about, you know, stimulus bill after infrastructure bill, $2 trillion after $7 trillion, yeah. uh, the question for a lot of people is, hello, how are we going to pay for this? Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the reasons I, I, I think that this bill may struggle to get through because Republicans apparently are, are trying to cut out all of the tax increases that the Democrats are trying to include. So, you know, for instance, the Democrats want to raise capital gains taxes and at the same time eliminate the stepped-up cost basis. And let me explain that a little bit. Yeah. It's, you know, okay, we understand raising taxes. Okay, you're going to have to pay more to Washington. But what is the stepped-up cost basis? Well, if you're wealthy and, and you've got lots of money tied up, let's just say in uh, Procter & Gamble stock that you inherited, you know, whenever, 50 years ago, and it's worth way more than that today. If you sell it now, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax on, on the profit. And I think everybody can agree, okay, that's part of the tax code. I can deal with that. However, if you let your children inherit that stock after your death, now when they sell it, they don't they don't have to calculate profits based on what you paid for it. They calculate profits based on the value on the date of your death. So in other words, they get a massive tax break, which has been in tax code for years and years and years. And what Democrats are, are trying to get through is, is okay, we're going to raise the capital gains tax. And, and if you don't want to sell your stock today, we're going to get that tax money out of it at your death and tax that as just as if you had sold the stock on the date of your death. So, you know, there's no way around that, you know, if you want to call it a loophole, uh, loophole. But that's the big point of contention is Democrats want that in the bill. Republicans don't. And by the way, Republicans don't want to give the extra money in the budget to beef up IRS enforcement of existing tax law, which Democrats also want to include. So this thing is not a gimme that it's going to pass. And, and uh, I think that's the big issue and why the president is touting that this needs to be passed and is visiting Cincinnati. It's like a political whack-a-mole here. Like when one idea <laughs> comes up, it. right? Like when yeah. one idea comes up, like, well, maybe we pay for it this way. Well, that gets whacked up. And then another one pops up, you know, to your point about the IRS, uh, you know, that was that was the whole plan, right? We're going to pay for this because we're going to hire more people. There's going to be more yep. enforcement. Go after the bad guys. Yep. Yes, exactly. And, and now you've got the Dems, uh, kind of the Democrats blaming special interest groups now because uh, the Republicans are opposing this idea. 
media. And then the Republicans on the other side are saying, hey, it's not that we aren't for this. It's that the stricter IRS enforcement has already been covered in a previous stimulus bill. So we should have we should be working in this direction anyway. And goodness, you know, I love my job, but sometimes talking about these things makes me want to pull my hair out. <laughs> oh, no kidding. I, I mean, it'll make your head explode. And, and, yeah. and you know, I, I, good point of clarification, because, yeah, the Republicans are, are, are not saying we don't want the IRS enforcement of existing tax law. You're right on the money. They're saying, no, you're already included in this other bill, so yeah. we don't need it in it's this already one. Coming. We don't, yeah. yeah, we don't need to pay for this. It's already covered, paid for, laid out uh, in previous legislation. Uh, and we're looking at 500 of $600 billion in 2019, um, according to a Treasury analysis, found that the tax gap was, right? Yeah. That could rise to $7 trillion over the next decade if it's left unaddressed. So that roughly equals to 15% of all taxes owed right now. No question there is a possibility of bringing in a lot of money there. Now, is it enough when we're spending at this level? I, I question that, but it's certainly a, a step in the right direction. Well, here here's the problem. I, I mean, Washington's never been good at math, Amy. I, I mean, that's that's pretty much a given. Just look at this bill. They went know. to the Amy Wagner School of <laughs> <Yeah>. Math. <laughs> but, you know, $580 billion a couple of weeks ago. Now we're calling it $1.2 trillion. Right there is part of the problem. I, I mean, you know, Washington has these grand ideas, and it's tough to disagree with some of them. But at some point, just like in your household and in my household, you got to say, oh, yeah, I'd like a new car. I'd like this. I'd like that. Oh, wait a second. How do we pay for it? You know, where's the money going to come from? Well, if we, you and I both controlled a credit card with no credit limit and a super low interest rate of maybe even under 1% or about 1%, and we only had to make minimum payments, we didn't ever have to pay principal, we would probably buy a lot. Well, that's that's essentially what yes. Washington's doing, you right. know, and, and they're doing this during good times and, and we're uh, good economic times and we're barely able to pay the interest. What worries me is what happens when the times aren't so good? What happens when the economy is not going through a monster rebound? What happens if a war breaks out? I, I mean, you've got China, you've got Russia, you've got Iran. There are a lot of concerns out there and we're barely making it financially right now during good times. So my, my big concern and, and, you know, I'm not being political. I'm just like you, you, you've got to you've got to figure out how you pay for all of these grand ideas without bankrupting the country. And, and that's where I'm at. Well, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this. Like, as we talk about this, my blood pressure is rising. And I think it's really easy collectively, right, for us to feel this way. A lot of frustration around Washington and how are we going to pay this and what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes I, like a lot of you, are probably just tempted to, like, I'm just going to pull all my money out of this, you know, stock market or, like, there's just, it's so crazy. And then I remind myself, no, like, we've been around this for a long time, right? Yeah, Things yeah. are going to be crazy in Washington. Deals are going to be made. Deals are going to fall apart. And my financial plan is the same financial plan that I set in motion years ago. Right. I tweak it. It's a living, breathing document. But I don't I don't change it based on the headlines of the day. And I think as we talk about this, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen when President Biden's in town or after he's gone? Well, that remains to be seen. But it's easy to be spooked by the headlines and think about what does it mean to me, especially when you feel so out of control about these things. But 
you can only control what you can control, and that's what you're doing with your money. Well, yeah, and, and you make a good point. You know, let's bring it back to you and me and our finances. I, I, I mean, I have always in financial plans done what I call an internal stress test. What happens if we go through another 2008? What happens if the day you retire, the market decides to drop 30%? Does that mean you have to start practicing saying, welcome to Walmart? Yeah, you know, and obviously right. a good financial plan, no, you can absorb that impact. And and I think that's the key is, yeah, there's always something to worry about. I might not be crazy about legislation and what it's doing to, you know, this this country's finances and eventually to, you know, inflation and, and stuff that does impact you and me. But, you know, when all is said and done, bring it back to your financial plan and make sure you can absorb these types of disruptions if and when they come. Here's the Simply Money point. We have heard big promises from Washington for an infrastructure deal. Now we're hoping that they are actually delivered this time. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, well, we miss you, but you can subscribe to our weekly podcast, The Best of Simply Money. You can find that on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcast. Marvel superhero movies bring Americans back to the cinema. Well, they were hoping. Turns out some things may have changed permanently because of that pandemic. We'll talk about that in three minutes. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Flexibility. Is it always a good thing? At 643, the benefits and costs of your very flexible 401k. So did COVID kill the cinema? Well, Marvel's Black Widow was expected to bring huge numbers of people back to the theaters and, well, not so much. I don't know, Steve, were you there? I wasn't. <laughs> I, I, I have yet to go back to a movie. And, and, I haven't and, either. And it's not because I don't go out. I, I mean, the pandemic really did not disrupt much of what I did. So getting back to normal was not a big jump for me. But, I, you know, one thing I've learned and I think a lot of people have learned is, is you know, I've got a big screen TV and it's a lot cheaper to sit in my in my family room and watch a movie, especially in this case. Black Widow was an ex- kind of an experiment that Disney's been doing where they're they're uh, distributing it on Disney Plus at the very same time they're yeah. letting it out to movie theaters. So you literally have a choice of, oh, I want to see this movie today. Do I want to go out? And pay money to a theater and buy $10 a box popcorn? Or do I want to sit at home and if I have to pause it to use the bathroom or, or you know, bring the dog in, I can do that. You know, yeah. and I think a lot of people are opting for, nah, I'll just stay at home. Listen, if there's two, three of you, right? I mean, the tickets are, what, 12 13 bucks a, a, a pop right now. Pay 30 bucks, you watch it from the comfort of home. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even both ways, right? I mean, Disney, typically these Marvel Disney films gross like $300 million domestically. Oh, and, they're big deals, yeah. Yeah, they're at like $132 million right now, so far behind. And I think this does beg the question. Is this change a long-term one? Now, honestly, I'm not a Marvel person. My son and I love the original Space Jam movie. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And so we have been counting down to the second one. Uh, Haven't seen it yet, um, but it actually kind of eked out a a first place at the box office over uh, the Marvel movie. So interesting to see. Uh, I think that was probably a surprise as well. Yeah, you know, and and it's funny because I was with my grandson and, and my son's family. Uh, last weekend, and that's all the six-year-old could talk about is is LeBron. There's a new Space Jam, you know, yes. and I'm, I'm thinking, 
wow, my son was, this was a while ago, my son was about that age when, when the the original came out. Right. So it's kind of fun. And, you know, this I think people are kind of, okay, is this another big shoot 'em up computer-generated, you know, crazy comic book story? You know, at some point, it, things run their course. And I think that's what's going on despite Scarlett Johansson's incredible acting skills. I'm not sure that's why she was in the movie, but, <laughs> but you know, in, in all seriousness, I've pe- heard pe- that in a sense yeah, pe- exactly. Pe- people are just—I I don't know—you get tired of things and you want to try something different, and you know, something light and fun in the summer, like a, a new Space Jam. I, I think that'll be fun. But you know, this is something Disney, I think, is going to panic a little bit because yeah. they kind of assume that okay, we're, they're putting a couple hundred million dollars into these movies, and if these things bomb within a week of being released. They've got problems about the pipeline that they were assuming was going to come in mm-hmm. on the next Marvel and the one after that and the one after that. So, you know, stay tuned. We'll see. I just, boy, you know, owning, owning stock in a movie theater chain right now, not sure what the future future is going to look like for that industry. You even bought AMC stock? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I'm not going to even get into AMC stock. <laughs> Every week we crack open the Allworth mailbag and answer the questions you send us at Ask. Simply money at allworthfinancial.com. And Amy Vita in Campbell County wants to know, I'm getting married in the fall and my fiancé makes three times more than me. How much should I contribute to the wedding? We're old enough that our parents are just along for the ride. Hey, this kind of hits home. This is kind of what you're going through. Right, yeah, getting married in a couple of weeks here. Um, You know, I don't think my concern is about the wedding. I think my concern is about what the financial life of these two looks like long term. Because yeah. if you haven't already figured this out, right, and and uh, if you're going to keep money separate and maybe that's what it's going to be, well, then you need to talk about what you're both comfortable with here. Um, so coming to us, well, there's no hard, fast rule for who pays for what. You know, once once parents are out of the equation, it's, okay, how are we going to get this done? Hopefully. My one thing would be, I think the average cost of a wedding right now, like $33,000. That's wow. a lot for wow. one night. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, please, like, keep that in perspective. Do not blow the budget. Do not make it so you can't afford to buy a house because of this. Um, but at the same time, Make sure that you have an open, ongoing conversation about money, whether it's about the wedding, whether it's about your credit scores, whether it's about what you want to plan for retirement. You know, have these conversations early and often in your marriage. Next question tonight comes from Daryl in Sycamore. What are some questions you ask a financial advisor to know if they're a good fit for you? I mean, outside of knowing if they're a fiduciary. Yeah, and I don't know if you want to just walk in and say, hey, are, are you a fiduciary? Because that that can be a maybe. You know, is that practice just working off of fees only, or do they have some commission products, or are they all commission products? I, I think a better question is, let's just get right into it. You know, once they do their introductions, hey, let's go over costs. Um, how do you make your money? I, I yeah. it, it's uncomfortable for people to ask that, but I I would want to know. You know, are you make if I sign these papers, how are you making your money? Is it an upfront commission? Are you paid upfront, but there's a back end penalty? And, and then I'll, I'm, it's natural for me to say, okay, so if I sign these papers, how much do you make? What, what's the gross? You know, yeah. and, and you're gonna you might hear some people hemming and hawing about that, but that is a valid question, and I think every investor should always ask that. There's a lot of other things, uh, you know, professional designations, certified financial planner. To me, is a really, really big, big designation. Yeah, because that means they are working for you by definition, and they they have a monster educational background. It's it's kind of like do you go to a CPA or a bookkeeper? 
you yeah. know, to do your taxes. It, it, okay, we've got some knowledge um, that, that supports that designation. And that, notice I didn't say anything about performance. I mean, the assumption I've always had is performance should be about equal as long as they're investing within my risk tolerance. And yet that's generally the first question I hear when somebody comes in to interview me. How much are you making your clients? To me, that it, it's part of the equation, but so many other things are a lot more important because if they're charging you a lot of internal fees, the performance is going to suffer. If they're giving you a fair deal, well, okay, performance should be better off. So you'll get to that point, but right off the bat, how much money do you make? What are your designations? The do's and don'ts of leaving money to grandchildren. That's ahead at 634 with estate planning attorney Mark Rackman. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. When it comes to your children and your grandchildren, my goodness, you would do anything for them. But what about those grandkids? Do you leave them money in your will or trust? This could get complicated. It can get dicey. So joining us tonight to help us get to the bottom of it is Mark Reckman. He's our estate planning expert from the law firm of Wood and Lamping. You know, I think, Mark, most people uh, feel pretty strongly, love those grandkids, want to do the best that they can by them. So what are the things we need to be thinking through when we're doing our estate planning when it comes to grandkids? Well, the big question that so many people ask me is, should I leave something to my grandchildren? And you're right, we love our grandchildren. Can we leave them money? Well, of course we can. But should you? And how much? Well, you know, that's a personal choice, Amy. What I can tell you is the, the vast majority of the wills and trusts that I write do not include grandchildren. But with the clients who want to include grandchildren, uh, you need to talk about a couple of three things. When it comes to deciding if you're going to include them or not include them, what's the thought process there? Well, you have to start by figuring out what the purpose is. What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, are you trying to, uh, to give money to the kids so they can have some fun, some spending money for immediate use? 
Uh, and if that's your goal, then my advice is keep the gift small, under five grand, maybe under ten grand, and give it to them outright, uh, unless they're minors. Uh, mm-hmm. But if they're over eighteen, give it to them outright, and expect that they're just going to spend it. Um, now. If that's not the case, if what you're trying to accomplish is to give them a leg up in life, uh, then you've got to make the gift large enough to be truly helpful, something they can invest and that they can watch grow and live off the income. And my advice in that case is to put it in a trust unless, of course, the grandchildren are fully mature. And what about um, large sums of money, right? You've got a very close relationship to grandkids, but also, you know, often they're, you know, younger. And so you're not sure exactly how responsible they could be about money at that point. Well, over the years, I have not become a fan about leaving significant sums of money to young grandchildren. It, it's just too risky. There, there are so many unknowns. You think you know your grandchildren, mm-hmm. uh, and you think you know them well. Um, but there are things that you don't know and things that you can't know because they haven't happened. Amy, I have seen cases uh, where children have developed mental illnesses uh, late in their youth. Oh, um, yeah. I can think of a couple of stories. Uh, that, uh, I remember one child who was a year ahead of me in high school, and he was the the, the, the uh, president of student council, captain of the swimming team. Uh, he was a, a, a scholastic scholar, uh, went off to Yale. He was the, he was the, the the golden boy, voted yeah. most likely to succeed in that class. And sure enough, uh, his freshman year, in the fall of his freshman year, he had a mental illness crisis. I suspect it was schizoaffective disorder. Mm-hmm. By Christmas, uh, he dropped out of school and joined a religious cult. Mm-hmm. Um, by the Easter of the following year, he was off in Mexico. All of his all of his college money he'd given to the religious cult. We didn't see that guy for ten years before he resurfaced, um, okay. and he was dead by the time he was thirty-five. Not you know, and if those grandparents right had said, "Look at him in high school; he's going to Yale. He's got you know he's going to do great things. We can trust him." Yeah, to your point, you never know. Uh, okay, so what are the other things thinking through um, that grandparents need to think about about grandchildren and in their wills? Well. If you want the money to be used for a specific purpose, my advice is to try to be practical. Uh, if you leave $10,000 uh, to a kid to be used for college, you're going to create a nightmare. The probate court's going to require accounting in that money and potentially for years. That process is cumbersome. It's expensive. Furthermore, $10,000 is not enough money to justify all that trouble. Shoot, even the state college tuitions at this point are ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a year, and that doesn't include room and board. So if you're going to do something like that, then then put the money into a 529 plan. Make the gift large enough that it will be meaningful. It's a lot easier to do. Plus, I would suggest that you consider using a trust. Or better yet, just give it to the parents and let them dole it out. What about, Mark, people who come in and they love their grandkids, they want to give them something, they're doing estate planning, but is there ever a consideration for, I could give this money, I could leave it when I'm gone, but I'd also like to see them enjoy it and spend it now? Sure, and and that's just fine, Amy. And what I tell those people is, keep it small. Give them $5,000 a piece. Expect them to go out and spend it on a used boat. I don't know what they would spend it on, but <laughs> but keep it small so that they don't do something stupid. And be sure that you don't enable somebody who has who um, addictive tendencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to be careful about uh, giving money to somebody who might use that money in a way that's harmful to themselves. 
You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we are joined by our estate planning expert, Mark Rackman, talking through, do you leave grandkids money? Uh, you know, and it looks like it shouldn't be a large sum of money. Mark, what about the people who decide, okay, I'm not going to leave it to the grandkids, but I'm going to leave it to my children, hoping that that gets to the grandkids in some way. Is there any way that you can direct that money in somehow? Certainly you can. You, you can just tell your children uh, what you want. And, of course, it depends on the family. You know, I've worked with families where the grandparents are solid, the kids eh, not so much, and the grandkids are solid. It sort of yeah. skips a generation. And that's a whole different situation. If you've got reliable grandchildren, if they're through that trouble, you what I call the trouble spots, that 20 to 25-year range where I've seen many, many cases of, of schizophrenia and bipolar conditions that are completely hidden until mm-hmm. the age of 18 or 20. If they're through that trouble period, then don't hesitate to leave it to the kids, uh, to the grandkids, I mean. Um, but you have to make that judgment based on the strength of your children and what they can be told to do. If you want to be real specific, a living trust is the way to do that. You put the terms right on the trust. This money is to be used for a wedding. This money is to be used for college. This money is to be used to start a small business or buy a home. These are things you can put right into a trust agreement. And as you're thinking about grandkids, obviously you're picturing the faces of the grandkids that are right in front of you. But what if, as you're making these decisions about these specific two or four grandchildren, you pass away and then more are born after you're gone? Are they just kind of left out of the equation? They are. And this is a classic scenario. And I I had this conversation with my own mother uh, a few years before she died. She had uh, five great-grandchildren, and she said to me, she said, I want to give money to – I want to put – money in a, in a college account for my great-grandchildren. And, and the problem was that her grandchildren at that point were in the prime of their childbearing years. And I discouraged her from doing it. And as it turned out, my mother passed away three years ago. She's had three great-grandchildren born since she died. And had she started putting money in an account for those who were around when she was around, she would have missed half of her grandkids. It's, it's not a practical solution. You know, I think there's just so many things to think through. You know, as we we started down this road talking about do you put grandkids into your will or not, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that maybe there would be some that could be born later. And that's why I think working with someone who can help you think through all the things that maybe you haven't considered is a great tool in estate planning. Well, it's all, the experience that we have in, in, in our field is we've seen it work. We've seen when it doesn't work. Great insights tonight, as always, from estate planning expert Mark Reckman from the law firm of Wood and Lamping. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sproback. How can bosses make this hybrid transition a little easier? We're going to talk about that in 10 minutes. You know, you've got plenty of options for your 401k, but all of that flexibility, well, sometimes we see the bad side of that, the flip side of it, and that it it can come with a cost, a price. Uh, And Steve, you know, I, there's pros and cons to the 401k. My grandpa, uh, he retired from um, Millicron. He only mm-hmm. had a pension. He knew yeah. his retirement was, you know, in the boss's hands. The 401k makes the retirement in our hands, and that's very yeah. different. I, I mean, it's it's a common investment tool used today that, you're right, wasn't around, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, and you know, here's, here's how important it's become, Amy. Next to your house, it tends to be your largest asset. Yeah. And guess what? You can't eat 
your bricks in your house. Yeah, and your house is not liquid. You're not going to sell your house to live off the money. So from a financial planning and retirement standpoint, your 401k may very well be the most important asset you have. And the biggest mistake I've seen people make, they never look at it. It, it, it's amazing to me that this is going to be one of the fundamental places that you draw money from, that you that you get your cash flow from for, for living purposes in retirement, and you spend more time driving to work than you do looking at your 401k. It, it, it's amazing to me. Well, that's one concern. My concern, though, often is that people look at their 401k for the wrong things. And I have a good friend who several years ago um, decided they needed to buy a fancy new car and they had not been saving for said fancy new car. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and as people often do with with us, like they kind of tell you a little more about the money situation than they might tell the average person. And they say, well, we just we just took it out of his 401k. And I'm like, oh, so you paid taxes, you paid penalties. That was money that you set aside for retirement. I think far too option when you're paying really close attention to those statements. If you're not smart about it, you do. You see the money, right, accumulating and accumulating, and you don't have a pile of money like that anywhere else. And so when an emergency comes, if you don't have an emergency fund or when a trip or a car or a down payment, whatever it is, far too many times I've seen too many people turn to the 401k. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, your friend might not have actually made it, uh, taken a distribution. It might have been a loan. Well, I'm paying back myself. What's wrong with that? I've heard that line a lot of times. I'll tell you what's wrong with that. Years ago, I was sent out to a factory in, in New Jersey that was being shut down by a local employer, um, and it was incredible. When I started meeting one-on-one with these people, I'll bet you three-quarters of them had loans on their 401K. Mm. Well, guess what happens when you lose your job? You generally have 30, maybe 60 days to pay that loan back. Well, if you borrowed $30,000 and you just lost your job, chances are it's not the best time for you to pay back a loan. And so these people that can't pay off their loan on their 401k, they are now in default. And that's a fancy way of saying, oh, okay, now that's considered a distribution. I'm under 55, so I pay tax on the amount that I borrowed and that's still outstanding and an additional 10% tax penalty. It crushed them. So, you know, sometimes life is out of your control. Think real hard on taking a loan or or accessing your 401k for any reason until you're retired and ready to use that money for the purpose it was designed, and that's living expenses. And make sure that you really understand your 401k, right? How it works, just 37% of Americans, right? So less than, far less than half, even know how your 401k work. So it's a tax deductible contribution, but you are going to pay taxes on the money when you pull out. Uh, and, and I know, and, and listen, I have fallen to victim to this one as well, your vesting schedule. Yeah. I left a job in my 20s, thought I was going to take all that 401k money with me, and yeah. I was not fully vested. And I didn't figure it out until I was on the other side of it. In some cases, it's a matter of working a few more months, right? The vesting schedule for some cases is every year that you're at a place, you know, 25%, 50% of the money that's in your 401k becomes yours up to a certain point, right? I think it's after six years, you know, of working at a place, all that money has to be yours that you've put in. But often there is a vesting schedule and you have to know what it is. Well, and, and, and let's go into that a little bit deeper because vesting only impacts your employer match. Money you put in, that's your money. 
I mean, yes. any money you put in and the earnings that it your, makes. Yes, your money you can take with your you at any money. Time. But the employer match, and, and you know, some employers have pretty healthy matches, which, by the way, make sure you at least put enough in your 401k to Please. get all of your employer's match because it's basically free money. You know, it's, it's yeah, then get that money. But the it, sometimes it comes with strings, and the maximum vesting schedule for the employer match is six years. And some employers will say, yeah, we're going to give you this match, and it's a good, hefty match, but if you leave after four years, we're taking that money back or part of that money back that we gave you. Even though it shows up on your statement and you think it's part of the balance, if you leave before it, that employer match is fully vested, which means fully yours, um, some of it or all of it may go back. So if you've been at the employer six years, not much to worry about. If you've been there less than six years and you think you may be leaving, you might want to look at the rules on your 401k because they vary. Some are six years, all or nothing. Some are 20% first year, 40% second year is vested, and, and so on and so forth. So before you pull the string, know how much of that money is going to leave with you. Yeah, know the rules and also Know the fees. I mean, we would say maybe try not to pay more than 1% of the assets that you have in there in fees each year, or that's going to cut back on your growth. And I say that, though, kind of with one caveat, and that is, what are you getting for the fees that you pay? I have yeah. a good family friend who came to me a few years ago and said, I just don't know much about this. Um, you know, we have some, and I looked at it, and there was some sort of higher fees. But with that came consultation with someone quarterly about where the, how they were saving and where that money was going. And as I you know, sat and talked to him about his family and what their goals were, I said, you are absolutely invested. Your 401k is invested in 100% what you need to be. Yeah. And so, yeah, you may be paying a little more in fees, but you're getting some great advice uh, you know, about how you're investing. And so uh, if you have higher fees, what are you getting for them? If you don't, uh, I think it's okay to go to HR and say, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, your employer has a fiduciary responsibility. Here's that word again, to make sure that the 401k is being administered properly, has the best uh, investment choices they're aware of. Um, uh, they should be doing their work, but not every employer does. I'll add one final uh, on, on this, Amy, and that's at least have a rough idea of what the breakdown of stocks to bonds are. I have talked to relatively conservative individuals that when they show me their 401k, they're 80, 90 percent stock. And, you know, this is something you can fix with a phone call. So at least be aware of what your breakdown and what your risk tolerance is and, and what percentage of stocks to bonds you have. And if it's not somewhere in the ballpark of where you think you're comfortable, uh, sit down with an advisor or call your employer plan sponsor. Here's the Simply Money point. The flexibility of a 401k, one of its greatest advantages, but also sometimes one of its disadvantages. So how can bosses make this hybrid transition a little easier? We're going to talk about that in three minutes. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Are you worried about your team as you start to come back into the office? If you're looking at this kind of hybrid transition, uh, this is a new, very uncertain thing for a lot of people. Steve, you're in the office yeah. all the time. I'm old school. 
You're old school. You like to be. I love. I personally envy how well you do at keeping work at work and personal life at home. That's fantastic. I'm horrible at that. <laughs> uh, and, and this whole pandemic has made it so much harder because I'm working from home now. Um, you know, I'll be back in the office a couple days a week. I'll be working from home a few days a week. And so as you're trying to figure out what that all looks like, you know, here's just some suggestions. Establish some core hours. If you've got members of the team uh, that are working from home and some that are in the office, what are the times when everyone needs to be online, available for Zoom meetings? And also, you know, depending on the roles, some people just need time to be away. I mean, I've talked to some kind of creative people, Steve, who do so much better working from home Mm -hmm. because they can focus better. There's not all the distractions of the office around them and they're able to get much more creative that way. So kind of knowing your team dynamics and how that works is going to be helpful here too. Well, when, when, when you open up a whole new method of work and workplace uh, attendance, um, there it's not going to go smooth uh, off, no. right off the bat. And and what we're finding is if you're a company, you're working for a company that's international or even just across the United States, the time zones can can really impact yes. what's going on. So you know you're working nine to five, and yet you get a request for a Zoom call at six p.m. because it's from people on the West Coast. You know, so they're finding that. Yeah, core hours seems to be a good compromise of, hey, keep 10 to 2 open because that's when the meetings are going to occur. After that, it's it's your time to do what you need. And, and you know, th- I think that's a good way of looking at working from home and hybrid working. Also, say thank you to the people who are working from you, right? They're coming back to work. Things are all kinds of different now. Studies show that the more you say thank you, the less likely that employee is to walk out the door. In fact, that's cut by half. So be sure that you're grateful. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.